I had just graduated from Hope College. I think you know some of the story. I had minored in uh, biology and Spanish, majored in chemistry. I like to say you two can become a pastor. I wanted to be a doctor, but had been given an unintended gap year. I applied to a volunteer organization, a little bit like AmeriCorps, only this program professed itself to be rooted in the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. It seemed to me like a perfect opportunity. I would be stationed in Seattle, Washington, at the Bailey Boucher House, caring for people dying of AIDS, which seemed inherently good to me, and also would boost my med school resume. The year began with a five-day orientation in an East Coast city in an urban historic church. On the second night of the orientation, as all of these volunteers from all over the country gathered in that historic sanctuary, the leader of the program concluded the meeting in prayer, and this is how he ended his prayer. In the name of Allah and Buddha and Krishna and Yahweh and God, amen. Now, to be honest, to that point in my life, I hadn't paid much attention to the theological details of a prayer, but I was caught by that conclusion. So, so I went to the, the leader, the prayer, after the meeting and asked a few questions. And I don't really remember what he said, but I do remember thinking to myself, John, you're not in Kansas anymore. You can't just dismiss and ignore people because they don't think like you, they don't believe like you, they don't act like you, they don't pray like you. So I hung with the program, admittedly with an ambivalence in my spirit. Two days later, we were in that historic sanctuary in that large East Coast city at a commissioning service where all of these volunteers would be commissioned and sent off to their varying places, me to Seattle, others all all over the country. The leader prayer who had prayed two nights earlier was inviting us to the table, and he never mentioned Jesus. Now, my theological education up to that point had been Sunday morning worship and flannel graph, but somehow I felt deeply convicted not to go to the table. This table of familiarity in that unfamiliar moment, this table of peace in an ambivalent moment, I I chose not to come to the table. I sat in the pew as others passed by me. I sat there an anxious mess, my mind spinning, my heart swirling in a moment of clarity. Words I had memorized years earlier with a college buddy while jogging, Ephesians 5, came back to me in a flash. Do not be partners with them. It was such a strong moment in my life that all I could say was, okay. So the service ended. I got up. I made my way to the leader prayer, and I said, hey, I'm really sorry about this, but I'm I'm not going to be able to continue on in the program. I'm I'm dropping out. He said, you you can't drop out. You, you signed a contract. I, I said, I'm, I'm dropping out. He said, our lawyers will be in touch with you. And in a moment of Christian humility, I responded, my lawyers will be awaiting your call. If I'm honest, my heart was broken. A clear sense of conviction, do not be partners with them, led to the consequence that I wouldn't be moving to Seattle. I wouldn't be caring for people dying of AIDS. It just didn't line up. And rather than a journey to Seattle, it launched a journey into depression. Uh, There's more 
to that story. I'd like to tell you them more in just a minute. But for now, let me frame for you what the next several months are going to look like, at least as it pertains to the preaching moment at Pillar. I want to define reality for you. Uh, Business leaders, especially in these parts of the world, say often the first task of every leader is to define reality. Uh, Leslie Newbegin helps us define reality with these words, the answer to the question, who am I, can only be given if we ask, what is my story? And that can only be answered if there's an answer to the further question, what is the whole story of which my story is a part? And he, he goes on to say, to indwell the Bible is to live with an answer to those questions, to know who I am and who is the one to whom I'm finally accountable. Leslie Newbegin wants to define reality in narrative form. To answer the question, who am I and to whom do I belong, takes shape in narrative. So over the next several months, we're going to launch ourselves. We're going to immerse ourselves in the whole story of which your story is a part. Let's start here. Let's start with this. Now, this is the story of the family of Jacob. And just as an aside, Jacob also goes by the name Israel. It's like John and Jonathan or Miranda and Randy. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report of them to his father. Now his father loved Joseph more than any of his children because he was the son of his old age and he made a long robe with sleeves for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, Joseph had a dream and he shared it with his brothers and they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to the dream that I've dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves, and suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, and your sheaves gathered around my sheaf and bowed to the ground. His brother said, are you indeed to rule over us? Are you indeed to have dominion over us? And they hated him even more because of his dreams and his words. Joseph had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. The sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowed to the ground before me. And when he told it to his brothers and his father, his father rebuked him and saying, what sort of dream is this that you've dreamed? Shall we come, I and your mother? and your brothers, and bow to the ground before you, and his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in his mind. The brothers were pasturing the flock at Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, your brothers are pasturing in Shechem, why don't you go pasture with them and Joseph said, here I am. 
And he said, come now, I will send you to your brothers to see how it is with them and with the flock, and then bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron. Joseph came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the field and said to him, what are you seeking? Joseph said, I'm seeking my brothers. He said, please, tell me where they've gone. He, he said to him, they, they have gone away. I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers to Dothan, and there he found them. And when his brothers saw him from a distance coming near, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, let us kill that dreamer. We'll throw him in one of these pits and say that a wild animal devoured him. We'll see what becomes of his dreams. But Reuben said, do not lay a hand on him in order to rescue him. Do not shed blood. Let us throw him in one of these pits, but do not lay a hand on him in order to rescue him from their hand and restore him to his father. And when Joseph came, they laid hands on him and stripped him of his robe, the long robe with the with the sleeves and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. They sat down to eat, and when they looked up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead carrying gum, balm, and resin to carry down to Egypt. Judah said, why should we not profit by killing our brother and concealing his blood? Let us sell him to the Ishmaelite traders. He's our brother, our own flesh. And the brothers agreed. So when the Midianite traders passed by, they took him up. They, they drew him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And Joseph was taken down to Egypt. When Reuben returned and saw Joseph was gone, he tore his garments and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I turn? So they took his robe, they slaughtered a ram, they dipped the robe in the blood, and they had it taken to their father, saying, We found this in the wilderness. See now if it is your son's robe. And when Jacob saw the robe, he said, It is indeed my son's robe. He has been devoured by a wild animal. Without doubt, he's been torn to pieces. And he tore his garments, and he put sackcloth over his loins, and he mourned for many days. And all his sons and all his daughters tried to console him, but he refused to be comforted. He said, I'm going down to Sheol with my son mourning. Thus his father bewailed him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar. One of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Genesis 37, if you want to find it in a Bible or maybe open it up at some point for devotions this week. That, that's the story of the family of Jacob. Over the next 14 chapters, we'll hear more of the story of the family of Jacob, so full of intrigue and suspense and violence and drama. And it ends in chapter 50 with those stunning lines we love to hear, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. That's reality. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. Now be careful slapping those words on someone's pain. Too easily, too quickly dismisses the agony, the hurt, and the sadness. But on the other hand, if you don't acknowledge what you and what humanity intends for evil, God intends for good, you, you miss reality. You miss what's actually going on. Let me just show you two things from the story. First is a pastoral caution I really want you to take seriously. The second is a gospel promise I hope 
you'll embrace with all your heart. Uh, Here's the pastoral caution. Be very careful when the condition of your heart is you cannot speak peaceably to another. That's how the story begins. And they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, maybe because Joseph had ratted out the brothers, the sons of Zilpah uh, and Bilhah, for, for not doing whatever they were supposed to be doing in the field. But apparently, it's, it's not actually no fault of Joseph's own. Rather, Jacob, or Israel, loved Joseph more than all of his children. How can that be? I can't get my head around that, but he did. He, he, and, and, and because of his misplaced affections, the brothers hated him. And they could not speak peaceably to him. And then, of course, Joseph has the dream. <laughs> and they hated him even more. And then he has another dream. Keep it to yourself, Joseph. And they're jealous of him. Be very careful when the condition of your heart is you cannot speak peaceably to another. I'm not going to be overly dramatic and suggest you'll go the way of Joseph's brothers and lie and cheat and conspire to kill and leave for dead in the wilderness. But I am suggesting that if you're in that spot, you cannot speak peaceably to another, bitterness is close. If you cannot speak peaceably to another, anger is right at hand. If you cannot speak peaceably to another, enduring animosity will become your best friend. And it's simply not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus, Father, forgive them. The way of Jesus, look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. The way of Jesus, be reconciled to your brothers and sisters. The way of Jesus, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. That's the way of Jesus. And let's be honest. Can we be honest? Can I define reality? We live in a contentious, polarized moment. And the inertia of our cultural moment pushes us into corners, tries to objectify by categorizing people, which is another way of dehumanizing people, so we don't have to see the image of Godness in them. And then we can just treat them for their argument or their perspective or their opinion and leaves us in the place you cannot speak peaceably to another. And it's simply not the way of Jesus. You uncomfortable? That's called the gospel. You remember five years ago, uh, the young man walks in, the young white man walks into the AME church in Charleston, South Carolina for Bible study and fires rounds, killing nine African-American Christians That was five years ago. So many black lives have gone down since. It's, I mean, embarrassingly, it's like it's like hard to keep straight. And this week, the horror of Breonna, the news around Breonna Taylor's death, leaves us exasperated and exhausted and crying out again. How long, O Lord? Five years ago, this young white man walks into the church and kills nine African American lives. And you remember how they responded? They grieved. They mourned. They lamented, they named the racial hatred for what it was, and then they said, we forgive you. That's the gospel. That's the way of Jesus. So my pastoral caution to you is be very careful when the condition of your heart is, I cannot speak peaceably to another. It's not the way of Jesus. Now here's the gospel promise. Genesis 37 basically ends like this. Thus his father bewailed him. Jacob 
for whatever reason, I don't get it, he loved Joseph more than all of his brothers, and now he's gone. He'd been, I mean, Jacob said he'd been eaten by a wild animal. Without doubt, he's been torn apart. Joseph is gone, the one I love, the one with the robe, he's gone, it's over, and his father bewailed him. Jacob stuck in lament. Jacob overwhelmed with sadness. Jacob overcome with grief. And then the next line. Meanwhile, that's a gospel word. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Jacob is stuck in lament. Meanwhile, the story goes on. Jacob is overcome with grief. Meanwhile, another chapter is being written. Jacob is overwhelmed with sadness. Meanwhile, Joseph lives. Joseph continues. The story is not yet finished. The gospel promise, the chapter in your life is not the whole story. Chapter 37 gives way to chapter 50. What you intended for evil, God intended for good, gives way actually to Exodus 2, if you don't mind me continuing. Exodus 2, the people of Israel are oppressed by an angry taskmaster in Egypt. And Exodus 2 gives way to Exodus 3, Moses on a deliverance mission. And Exodus 3 gives way to Exodus 15, the people in the wilderness grumbling and complaining. Exodus 15 gives way to Exodus 40, God drawing near. Genesis 37, though it's a real chapter in the story, is not the end of the story. Genesis 37 gives way to Genesis 50, gives way to Exodus 2, becomes Exodus 3, becomes Exodus 15, becomes Exodus 40, becomes God in the flesh in Jesus Christ to suffer and die for the forgiveness of sins, to go to the grave, to defeat death, so it doesn't get to have the last word. He rose up in resurrection to offer life, full, whole, animated life. He ascended into heaven where he rules and reigns so that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. He comes again to make it all new and to make it all right. That's the whole story of which your story is a part. That's reality. So what chapter are you in? A sneeze and a sniffle become lockdown or worse? A world pandemic and an election year and natural disasters all over our globe, what chapter are you in? Racial injustice continues to break our heart and divide our country, what chapter are you in? Anxieties are high. Depression is real. Sadness is overcoming. Be honest about the chapter. It's a chapter. It's not the whole story. That's the gospel promise. The whole story of which your story is a part is the story of Jesus. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of reconciliation. It's the story of restoration. It's the story of grace and mercy and kindness and wholeness. That's your story. That's who you are. That's the one to whom you belong. So I dropped out of a volunteer organization because of Christian conviction. That's a great way to get yourself into medical school. Uh, The the, the leader prayer, he'd prayed in the name of Allah and Buddha and Krishna and Yahweh and God, and I didn't even know half of those words at the time. And then two days later, he invites us to the table, the table of familiarity in that unfamiliar moment, the table of peace and that ambivalent experience. And I didn't go. I didn't come to the table, and I sat in the pews in anxious mess. Well, I didn't get accepted to med school. I may have mentioned that once or twice. 
I decided to go to seminary. I'm in seminary. I'm about to graduate. And there's this little church out north of Seattle looking for a pastor. I'd always wanted to go to Seattle. That's where the Bailey Boucher house was going to be, the people there dying of AIDS. I was going to care for them. The, it seemed kind of cool. I'd, I'd actually get to go to Seattle. How, how wonderful is that? The, the leader of the pastoral search team that was calling me, as, as I learned more of his story, went on to share with me that his son, his name was Scott, had contracted AIDS and spent time in the Bailey Boucher house in Seattle. And for me, in that little way, in that little chapter of my life, became God's way of saying, I see you. I know you. I love you. The journey to Seattle became a journey into depression. I see, I'm going to give it back to you. What you thought you had lost, I have found. The, the, the sadness that was overwhelming, I'll give back to you as joy. The ache that breaks your heart, I will give back to you as reconciliation. That's the gospel promise. Chapter 37 is not the end of the story, and whatever chapter you're in, it's not the end of the story. Your story, the whole story of which your story is a part is the story of Jesus. It's a story of redemption. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.